Hello to you and to me. And welcome to the one of the uh, episode one and three of the four to the Creative Writing Podcast. I am your host, Junkie the Triumph Guy, for me to rev my bike on. And uh, hey, Wiggs and I are out of town this week, so you're going to get a best of. This is Junkmeister, and I'm welcoming you to a fabulous episode of Creative Writing, episode 134. Stick around. I hope you don't poop your boots. All right, let's get into the show. Everybody. Hey, I hope you enjoyed. Well, I don't know about last week's show, man. It was Friday the 13th. The audio cut out on me a bunch of times. My, my computer was over, overheating, and I think it's just destined to overheat now from now on. Um, and as a matter of fact, right now it's blazing hot, and I have a bunch of cooling fans running underneath it, and its internal cooling fan is running. Uh, so I don't know what to do about that. However, I hope it doesn't interrupt the show like it did last week and make me repeat myself like I did last week, uh, in which I hope you enjoyed hearing me say things 14 different times uh, the same way, (laughs) because I sure as hell loved it. Um, Hey, like I said, on this week, this week's show, I'm I'm on vacation right now. I'm in Pismo Beach enjoying myself, enjoying the waves, enjoying riding dune buggies on the dunes up there, just like, you know, that Redis guy on that one show from that one... Uh, podcast that we all love, Motorcycles and Misfits. Supposedly his favorite podcast, but I think that could have been production added later. Uh, anyways, Wiggs is in Miniota Labasabalus. Uh, wait, let me read my writing. Minneapolis, Minnesota uh, for the X Games. And uh, if you have access to cable, you should be checking that out. So this week, we're going to bring you the best of. And uh, we're going to bring you some old interviews and some old footage. For those of you, I've had a few people, uh, some new listeners, and actually family members are starting to listen listen to the show. They haven't caught up this far. So uh, hopefully I can warn them about the old shows. And actually, I gave them fair warning. And they went back and listened, uh, asking me stuff about, hey, You used to do movie reviews. Do you do those anymore? And where can I find these old movies that you were talking about? Well, uh, I you found them on YouTube. Uh, Either that or you could uh, dial them up on the old Amazon or Netflix or whatnot or even go to your local video chain store if they still exist in your town. The big ones like Blockbuster went away, but I think they're still Redbox and Netflix. You can still order a a CD or a DVD or a VHS, however they come. But there's a lot of movies that I've seen that just will not be aired anymore. Uh, And you're going to have to find somebody archiving them on a big service like YouTube. Um, Now, I'm not sure about copyright licensing and all this and that. All I know is that that's where I saw most of the ones that I got to because I wanted to make sure everybody could get to them as well as me. So if you go back and listen to the old episodes and you want to hear some of those cool movie reviews, go find them on YouTube. All right, with no further ado, let's get into this week's show. And uh, anything I might have mentioned on any past shows will obviously uh, be taken a backseat. Huh? You know what I'm saying? We'll get to it in, the, in a future episode. All right, here we go. Let's uh, first jump off with episode 16, one of my faves. Uh, 
Welcome to episode 16. She lives. That's my Yamaha SR. Oh yeah. Hear the thump and rumble. <laughs> of a crummy thumper. Don't be a jerk. All right. Let's uh, move on. All right. Well, last time we had an interview from the Great White North. It was to the east in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Now let's move to the west over to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I had the pleasure to interview a lovely and talented individual, which we will get to meet right now. And let's sample some of the music that this person does in their spare time. All right, take it away. Last time, we brought you an interview from the great white north of Wisconsin. Let's move a little bit west. Let's welcome Josette Herdell to the show. Hi, Josette. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Just really quick, can you give us like a 10,000 foot view of who you are and what you do for a living? Uh, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, in a past life, I was a journalist for NPR, a radio producer, and uh, absolutely love doing that down in San Diego. Um, currently, my husband and I are, uh, we enjoy working on vintage motorcycles. We build uh, cafe racers. And um, we also have a, a 1940s and 1950s uh, jump blues band, swing music, kind of rock and roll. And um, I'm also a holistic migraine coach. So we are juggling a lot of different things and all things that we're very passionate about. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know I can't wait to get into these topics with you. They're very, very interesting to me because uh, it's just awesome to have people that are creative, but also people that um, I know as the migraine coach, uh, it's something that I never really knew about you that you struggled with, but it seems like something that could possibly, you know, interrupt the way that someone wants to live their life. So, uh, first off, let's, let's start off with the migraine coaching. Um, what's the name of your company or your website? Uh, the name is goodbye migraine. And why did you need to start uh, goodbye migraine? Um, it, it came about in October of last year. I, um, my younger brother, who's had chronic migraines since he was a, a child, since the age of four, he came to visit me to get some help with his migraines. And um, seeing the the extent, the severity of his condition really um, just weighed heavily on me. And um, I woke up one morning and I felt completely overwhelmed by an idea to offer myself as a, as a migraine coach. Um, it's also based on my personal experience. I've had chronic migraines most of my adult life. Um, had my first migraine at the age of 18. I'm, I'm in my 30s now. Um, and and they got so bad at a point that, that I was sick for maybe 25 days of the month, I'd have a migraine. And I'd just be on the couch, just wasting away, um, unable to work, unable to do anything. So that, that experience 
um, brought me to a lot of doctors and, and I tried all the different medications and treatments and Botox injections. And eventually the doctor said, we're sorry, <clears throat> we can't help you. Um, we've tried everything on you. You're, you're just, there's no hope and we're just going to send you home and you're going to be sick forever. And, um, you know, I said, well, either I'm going to just go ahead and off myself cause that's no way to live or I'm going right. to, I'm going to figure this out. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, so I decided I mean, to figure it out, and and uh, and I. It took me about six years of getting off the medications and and healing my body in a more holistic, uh, integrative approach, a natural approach. And and I've been migraine free now for a couple of years. So yeah. that that experience um, really made me feel like I. I have healed for a reason, and that reason is so I can help other people heal because there, there's hope, but traditional medicine is not telling people with migraines that they can heal. It's telling them that they're going to be sick forever. So. Right. I was, I was going to say, can't you, I mean, don't they just give you some medications for it or something like that? But it sounds like you, you literally tried everything under the sun and nothing really uh, worked as far as like, maybe did it help your symptoms, but just, I mean, you know, you can only help symptoms for so long before you just basically go crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the typical problem with pharmaceuticals. They try this pill, then you get a lot of side effects. We'll take this pill for the side effects, take this one for that. You're constipated or you can't think straight. Or I remember working at NPR and going into uh, meetings to pitch stories. And in the middle of a meeting, I just completely go blank and I just couldn't remember words. Like try, I try to make a sentence and I just real basic, uh, cognitive stuff was, was just gone. And, um, so for, you know, I tried all the different ones and it just, um, maybe the migraines would be a, a lot better, but then I, I lose my inability. I lose the ability to sweat. Like I, I'd no longer sweat. And that's a, that's a problem for the body. If you can't have a normal <laughs> function like that, or I'd lose the ability to eat. So I'd start becoming malnourished. And so there's just, it, to me, it was just like, this doesn't make sense. There's gotta be a solution. If my body is this sick, what's the underlying reason causing it. And that's really what I started searching for versus like putting a bandaid on it, taking a medication. Right. And I, I know that a lot of people that manufacture meds, I know they have good intentions, but then, you know, in the end it makes money for like five different people because somebody's making a pill to counteract the side effects of this pill and this pill. And it becomes right. a money thing, you right. know, throwing, throwing, throwing money at a problem basically what you're saying um, really resonates because it it makes more sense to me than you know trying something that's poisoning your body basically to fix something else that's really got you um, laid out you know or in, yeah, in some pain. Exactly. You know, it's it's easier to go to the doctor and, and take the medication, and, and we all want to trust our doctors, and uh, they usually have good intentions, but they're um, up, up until this point, their their education has been focused on one way of treating the patient, and there is a paradigm shift in, in medicine happening where uh, doctors are now looking at a at a more integrative, holistic, functional approach. Um, which is, is better in, in treating the whole person. So really a, a coach like myself, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a trained doctor, so there's limitations in what I can do, but 
but I sit down with, with a client and we go through their history and we look at their diet and we look at their lifestyle and their stress and their happiness and what they're doing for fun and their relationships. I mean, you look at everything and then you come up with you, you come up with a program to, um, work them through the different changes that they need to make. And usually there's, uh, uh, blood and urine tests that need to be done. You need to find out on, on a biochemical level, what's going on with their body. And, you know, if they're having allergies to foods and if they're, uh, deficient in nutrients or malnourished and a variety of different things, you know, hormonal imbalances. So it's a really complex approach. And that's where, um, having somebody that's, that's educated in, in all the different facets of that can really be helpful because it's overwhelming, especially when you're sick. <laughs> right. Um, so, <laughs> right. And a lot of times you don't have answers and, and you don't know where to start looking. Um, right. and you mentioned, you mentioned that, you know, and being happy and how to enjoy life is an important part of, uh, overcoming that. What, um, I know that, you know, obviously you said that you, you like uh, vintage music and you like motorcycles. I'm assuming that that was really hard to keep engaged in those things. Um, at, you know, certain times if you were suffering or, or if you just didn't feel like, you know, participating in that. And so, right. uh, right. right. How yeah. did, how did you basically, how did you deal with the migraines while you were doing this other stuff, while you were in trying to engage in, in, uh, the things that you love to do for, you know, that keep you happy? Yeah. You know, the, the sad, the sad reality is, is I, all of those things got pushed to the side and Mm. it was really depressing. Um, I am a, I am a musician and an artist. And one of my, the biggest joys in my life is riding vintage motorcycles with my husband, Eric. And, um, that, that slowly, as I became more sick, just slowly became, uh, something that, that we lost in our life. And, and it was difficult for him to, um, but as I, as I started to see myself as less of a victim to the migraines and more of a, a warrior attitude of like, I'm, I'm in control. I can figure this out. I can, I can get through this. I started to get better. And, and it was right at the beginning of getting better that we started our band. And I still remember, you know, having evenings where we'd practice at our house with the band and I'd be in my bedroom sick, just with a towel over my head and, you know, just trying to trying to get away from the sound and, and just suffer through the evening. And I missed a lot of practices because of that. Um, and also with the, the motorcycle stuff, um, Eric, Eric and I, it, it just got to a point where I was unable to help him in, in the shop, you know, when he's working on a bike. And that was something that we loved doing together. And I couldn't be around the chemicals and the different things that would make me sick down there and couldn't participate in the, the vintage rides that we do with friends. And, um, that was just sad because I, I love doing that, but, but you know, right, you get right. well and, and you're able to, to get back onto enjoying those things. So, right. I guess there's two ways to look at it either. Um, you know, these things are, are aggravating and stimulating my migraine and I got to get away from them or <laughs> right. these things, these things aren't going away. So I better get rid of the stinking migraine <laughs> so I can get, right. get back in those things. Yeah. Um, so speaking of, uh, motorbikes and stuff, how long have you been into motorbikes? Um, probably about eight years. I still consider myself fairly new in it. Um, I, 
I've always loved motorcycles. My father is a big vintage BMW um, enthusiast, motorcycle enthusiast, airhead, I guess they go. And um, so so I grew up around old bikes and um, I, I came to my dad uh, about eight or so years ago. And I said, Hey dad, you want to help me buy a, an old Honda? And, and, uh, if you get it for me, we can build it together. And, you know, I just had this idea that I thought was so great. I could learn how to, you know, I didn't want to own a vintage bike if I didn't understand how, how to work on it and what, what it just was. And I thought it'd be a cool way to bond with him. And, Oh, he went for it. He, he just was super excited and he built me this beautiful, um, stock, uh, 1978 CB 400 twin. And it was, it was a great bike. It was a good first bike. Um, he, he wasn't disappointed that it wasn't a, a Beamer. <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. I mean, really for a first bike, uh, he's such a, he's a, um, he's an engineer, so he likes to do everything meticulously and he'll restore everything. And so f- to restore a BMW just would be like totally ridiculous for a new rider, I think, especially me. <laughs> right. So, um, it really made sense. You know, I was, I thought a Honda was a reliable bike, which it is. I just thought it was a good starter bike, not, not a big investment, you know? So that's where it started. Um, and then, and then, uh, I never quite felt like the bike was right stock for me. And, and then I, then I met Eric and, and he helped me transform it into the cafe racer that it is today. <laughs> right. That's the, that isn't that the problem is that, you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing's ever uh, good just right out of the box. <laughs> it's right? always, always evolving, always evolving. Yeah. So, so right after you got into motorcycles, um, I'm kind of cheating a little bit because I know some of the things you're affiliated with, but it sounds like that you just like jumped into the deep end. Once you, once you got your feet wet, it's <laughs> like, well, let's just get the rest of me wet. wet and you just yeah. dove straight, straight to the bottom there. Right. So, yeah. um, so besides, uh, working in a shop and restoring old bikes, um, what sort of other stuff did you get into right off the bat? Um, well, I, I, um, I got involved with the mods versus rockers event down in San Diego. And that, that kind of was like the beginning for me where I, um, was exposed to the variety and the diversity of different things that can be done to bikes as far as like custom cafe racer type designs and, um, modifications. And, um, soon after that, I had a, um, a fellow from the vintage Japanese motorcycle club, um, come to me and asked me if I would be interested in being a field rep for them. So, I kind of was hesitant cause I I'm so busy, but, um, you know, I, I said, sure, why not? So, so I've been a, a field rep for them for, um, some years now. It's just a, uh, international, um, vintage Japanese motorcycle club as the name says. Um, right. so just, just started becoming more of a, you know, resource trying to help people in the community, um, find parts and, and also just connect people with other enthusiasts that might, you know, help them with their builds or, or whatever, just kind of wanted to, to be involved in, in that community. Cause it's just a nice group of people. I mean, the vintage biker, like the British European and Japanese vintage biker crowd is just, they're awesome. Like they're just nice folks. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't start a conversation. You're not willing to sit there and then hear for hours. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, 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 that's the other thing that's great too, is that you, 
you know, you make a friend and it's like you have a friend for life, but then you gain like their whole uh, club or, you know, they you know, you get a right. lot more friends for just making one. <laughs> and it's, that's just how vintage bikes in general are. Right. Um, so out yeah. of all the bikes that you've maybe ridden or restored or owned, which one is your favorite or, or do you not own that one yet? Is it, is there one that you have that you just got your eyes set on and you just haven't, uh, came across it yet or something that's that's such a challenging question um uh the funny thing about me is is eric and i have been blessed to we do have a we have a a decent collection of motorbikes and um typically the ones that i really want are ones that i'm unable to ride because i'm a petite person i have really small hands i'm not very strong i once hopped on eric's uh 71 norton commando uh 750 and it's it's a cafe racer with alloy manx racing tank and clip-ons and all that jazz and the thing's beautiful. I just love the way the Norton sounds. And I hopped on it and rode it for like five minutes before my hands were cramping up. And it was just, that's the bike I always dream about riding more. Like I, I know that it's just too much for me, you know, and I, I don't, I don't want to go there, but I, I always like fantasize about that bike, just the feel <laughs> of it, the, the rumble and the vibration and just the power and but um, that one's, yeah, that one's in the shop. I just can't handle it. <laughs> <laughs> you're describing me too. I'm, I'm small. I'm little. I have <laughs> my kids' hands are bigger than mine. Yeah. I remember, uh, you know, even pushing out uh, a 750 from a garage once. Um, I've ridden much bigger bikes, but yeah, I, I agree. It feels like I'm riding on the back of a whale. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah. I, I fear... When you know on some stuff you just you click and on other stuff you just you, you feel like you're not the one in control at some points and that's it's scary but it's exciting and, and it's yeah. great to hear you describe everything about the bike that excites you because I mean that's basically the nuts and bolts of uh riding in, in general and, and what it what keeps people engaged is just the feel and the sound and all that stuff that's great exactly yeah and we do the the other bike that I've that I do enjoy riding, which I actually can. We have a 68 um, BMW R60 slash two. And the cool thing about that bike is it's, um, it's not your perfect typical old BMW that's been restored. It's got some patina and just some, um, character to it, but it's got some Dunstall mufflers on it. And so it sounds like a Norton and it feels like a Norton. And so that's something that I can handle that bike. And I still get that kind of like, I don't know that fiery feeling from it that the Norton gives me. So that's really cool. Yeah. Like a, a Norton emulator or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And, and I love, I mean, I just, the, the BMW rides so smoothly. I mean, it's, it's much smoother of a ride than the, than the Norton too. And, and a bit easier to handle for somebody like me. So that's, it's a nice uh, alternative. <laughs> right. Right. That's cool. That's awesome. And you know, those BMWs are extremely classy and highly desired bikes. I mean, if yep. you have to be seen on a Norton or a Beamer, there, you, there's no wrong answer there. Uh, right. Either, right. either choice is good. Yep. Um, and so as far as this whole stable of bikes that you guys have, um, what it, what's in your garage? What is your garage? Are you guys, do you guys have a club or? Yeah. Um, well, the garage is a lot of things right now. Um, it's partially a, a skateboard area. We've got a giant skateboard half pipe in there for the boys, but, um, 
we store all our, our uh, collection of motorbikes in there. And um, <clears throat> we have a workshop area where, you know, for just as a hobby, Eric and I love working on um, building cafe racers. So we have a little area where we can do that. And um, uh, we, we use the workshop and, and the um, garage for our club event. So we, we have about six years ago, we started a, a vintage motorcycle British and cafe racer club or I guess it's not really a club, it's a group. Um, so we started a vintage motorcycle cafe racer and British motorcycle group. And, um, we are just trying to bring like-minded enthusiasts together to, um, just enjoy a meet and greet once a month, uh, go on vintage motorbike rides together, um, swap parts, help each other with projects, just kind of as a network of people, because there was just, there was no cohesion in the community when we came up here. Um, so yeah, we've got over 200 people on our email list and we have a, in the summer months, we have maybe 60 old motorbikes out lined up on the street and people just walking around enjoying a brew and talking about, you know, vintage iron. So it's, it's been really cool. Yeah. Nothing beats that. And I, I I mentioned that we're moving West from Wisconsin. I didn't, I failed to mention that you guys are up in uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And so, wow. I didn't even know 200 people lived there, let alone have 200 (laughs) people on your mailing list. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's a, it's, it's not a very nice place. Nobody should come up here. I don't think anybody would like it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. No, just stay right away. Stay away. Right. Stay out. <laughs> um, and so where did the name Cafe 59 come from as far as uh, having that as the name of your guys' club? Yeah, um, it was something that, that Eric started years ago because um, uh, he was into this a long time before me and he can expand on it another time. But the, the full name is 59 Cafe Classic Motorbikes and uh, short 59 cafe. Um, so it really, uh, gets its inspiration from the, uh, 59 club that started in London, uh, started as a youth group in the 1950s. And, uh, it was just, a, a pastor, um, trying to bring in wayward youth and, um, another, uh, pastor, father, William Shergold, who was a motorcyclist. He brought, he decided to bring, um, motorcyclists into the church service. So he started inviting these, these rockers, these young kids that rode motorbikes into the church service. And, um, that was kind of the beginning of the 59 club. It was born out of that. So just church right. full of, full of rockers. And then right. the cafe. If you could imagine part, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really <laughs> a cool idea. Um, and the, and the cafe part is, you know, self-explanatory cafe racers. That was another a big thing for the youth in, in England in the fifties. And, uh, that's Eric and I just both love the, the history of cafe racers. We love the aesthetics of them, uh, love riding them. Although I, I will admit that with my migraines, I've had a harder time riding, riding cafe racers because the, the, um, way that you're, you sit on the motorbike is hard on my neck. And, and I, I kind of, puts tension in the wrong areas for me. So I haven't been able to ride them as often anymore, but man, are they fun. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's why they call them cafe racers. And I guess not cafe tours because you don't want to spend too long of a day on them. All 
right, we're going to take a quick break from our interview to talk about uh, some issues that came up this week. And we'll get back with Josette right after that. Well, that was episode 16 down in the books. Up next is one of my favorites, episode 24 with Steve. This is the Steve Cast. Hey, podcast listeners, welcome to episode 24. Uh, we're going to call this one the Steve Cast. And on today's Steve Cast, we're going to have an interview with a special guest. So episode 24 is a special episode because we have another guest from the great state of Wisconsin. I would call it the Great White North, but I think they're coming out of their uh, winter freeze right now into a nice spring thaw. Uh, Steve is going to be our guest tonight on the show, and Steve's real name is Michelle Mankiewicz. If you go to our website, Michelle was courteous enough and kind enough to offer us like her, in her own words, the story of her experience as a female motorcycle, well, and a female motorcyclist. And I'd like you to go check that out because I couldn't have put it better myself if I had like talked to her first and then tried to write something up. So we'll get a chance to hear from Michelle in person, in depth about who she is, what she does and why she loves riding and racing so much. And, well, as a special bonus right up front, I'd like to offer up a few things that you're not going to hear in the interview, but that Michelle and I went over. First of all, let me just tell you, she's rock and roll, and she likes to get straight to the point. Here's Michelle on getting started. Can we just go, like, straight to pants shitting? Hey, man, absolutely. And from pants shitting to what to say to a guy who's trying to pick up on you because you ride a motorcycle, we kind of cover it all. So here's a top five. I'm going to call this number one. Steve and I were talking about dating. Girls um, tend to meet guys like that, too. Like if they see girls with motorbikes, the guys kind of come out of the woodwork and they're really something else. Definitely interesting characters. And to those characters, you could say something like, hey, hey, dude, I'd, I've wheelied bikes harder than you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was pretty good myself. The second one I'm going to call uh, the Markowitz writing style. I asked Michelle to briefly sum up her writing style or, you know, her writing experiences. And this is what she had to say. Oh, man, bro. I was doing 200 miles an hour and my fingers are coming off the grips. This is in and out of traffic. <clears throat> Indeed. So, if you ever wonder what it's like to hang out with a female racer, now you know. Steve and I also talked about butts. I think Steve took an issue with how long I watched a butt video. Ain't nobody going to tell me how long I can watch a butt video. Listen in. I didn't watch the whole five minutes because I'm not that desperate to see a butt jiggling. Just but four I minutes and 45 four seconds. And, four and a half minutes and... Hey, four and a half minutes. Who cares if it was five minute long video when I watched four and a half minutes of it? It was a butt jiggling. Number four, I'm going to call how hot is hot. I like the way that Michelle thinks or Steve. Uh, she thinks kind of outside the box and the way she was measuring heat blew me away. Let's hear her alternative to Fahrenheit. It was still hot as blazes and it yeah. wouldn't even cool off till late. How hot are blazes? Um, I would say <laughs> seven thousand. <laughs> okay. Okay. Hot as blazes means. Can you seven. can you measure temperature in joules? 
Wow. Only a science nerd could have pulled a jewel out of their hat. I was thoroughly impressed. And on this last, this fifth and final point I want to make, uh, I think Michelle or Steve was just trying to be pretty humble. Um, Steve is pretty tall, has a lion's mane for hair. Um, You know, I thought Steve looked just fine, but here's what Steve had to say about herself. Yeah. You know, after this interview, I sound like a fat, hairy, bearded slob. Uh, no comment. And with no further ado, let's get into the interview with my special guest. We're here with Steve Macknowitz. <laughs> no, we're here with Michelle Mankowitz from the Great White North of Wisconsin. Are you from Waukesha, too? From close by there? From where? Are you from Waukesha? Waukesha? Like, is that like the city name of the girl singer? <laughs> no, yeah. It's, it's Waukesha. Wa- yeah, just Waukesha. Waukesha. Yeah. Shoot. I, I, I was drinking when Chris told me the right pronunciation. Have you ever seen have you ever seen Wayne's World? Yeah. So in Wayne's World, he uh Alice Cooper is talking about the funny names. Milwaukee. Milwaukee, the good land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's all these uh Native American Indian names here. So however you say it, I think we're fine with it. All right. Are you from there? Are you from that one place that will remain unnamed? I'm from the W land in Wisconsin. Yes. The W city in Wisconsin. Okay. <laughs> There's only one. So people will know wherever you're from. That's it. There's so, just one. <laughs> yeah. This is an impromptu question I wrote down uh, today with, with two shows in one week. Do you feel like that you're going to start needing a, like a talent manager to <laughs> like start booking your appearances? <laughs> No, you know, I did make a list for myself of my weekly goings on that all revolve around racing, ironically enough, and hung it in my kitchen. So I think that's as far as uh, we're going for like agent status over here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) How many, how many things you got going on in one week or in this week? Um, well, I mean, like I just, I kind of put some work stuff on there too, just things I needed to remember in terms of my classes and things, but, um, I talked to Teresa's garage yesterday. We're chatting tonight. Uh, racetrack was last night. And then I'm going to be at the track for something completely on motorbike related tomorrow. And water eating contest. <laughs> it's a hot dog eating contest. Well, yeah, you got like a full scale. You are going to need a manager at least for your personal life, if not your uh, appearances. <laughs> so I know, I know Teresa's garage pretty much um, covered it, but for anybody that wasn't listening yesterday, which is probably the whole town of um, Waukesha, what <laughs> do you do for a living? I am a teacher. So I went to college um, here in Wisconsin at a university that's in the same town where I live right now. And I just ended up liking the town so much. So I stayed but I went to school for education and I double minored in language arts and social studies. So I taught in a very traditional public classroom setting for five years. And then I had this opportunity to go work for a place that has indoor skydiving. And I teach physics using a vertical wind tunnel now. So I teach grades two through freshman in college, physics, grade level appropriate, obviously, 
using this giant machine. So it's totally different. It's really cool. It's something very untraditional, which is very me. But I'm transitioning back into a normal classroom. Right. Do you ever mess up and accidentally accidentally teach like the college kids second grade physics and they just don't (laughs) get it? (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, here, adults who are very smart, let's make parachutes. (laughs) You know, every once in a while, though, we'll have the um, like more advanced students do things like make parachutes like the elementary school kids would just to kind of see. Um, well, I mean, they're interested and then they get all excited about it. So we let them do it just because they engineer some really neat stuff. So awesome. it's kind of fun like that. And it lends to good conversation about physics. So yeah, we run with it. Yeah, I, actually, that's pretty cool because in my, um, my wife is an educator also in language arts and a lot of times social studies is a huge thing. It's funny though, that like math, she loves math. And I don't know that many women who love math, to be mm-hmm. honest, and that are mathematicians. So that's actually kind of cool that, I mean, physics is like, the sciences in general is kind of a weak field for women to be in. So it's pretty, I think that's pretty cool. Sure. And obviously and- motorcycle racing as well. You're kind of covering a couple bases here that aren't traditional for ladies yeah. to be in. Yeah, I mean, like, well, and I'm sure your wife can attest to it. STEM education is huge right now. So science, technology, engineering, and math. And that's how we manage to tie everything in together with the wind tunnel and education. And everything is aligned with the Common Core and Next Generation Science Standards. So it's all tied in. I differentiate to the curriculum that's going on in the classrooms. So it's legit. It's pretty cool. Um, It'd be nice to see more girls obviously involved in women in math and science. Yeah. You know, if I, if I got to go to a wind tunnel for school, I think I would have paid attention more. I know. (laughs) I know. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much an unconventional teacher. Like teachers nowadays are encouraged to find different avenues to teach because students all learn differently and there is no such thing as just like a pencil and worksheet anymore. So being able to do these neat things like that, you know, I've always kind of been finding a different route to get kids engaged and keep them interested. So this is right up my alley. It's pretty neat. Uh, Do you ever use motorcycle racing as an example, I mean, I, I don't know how specific it is what you're teaching, but do you ever use like your your bike to teach a lesson or, or vice versa? Yes, um, I did a lot when I was in a traditional classroom setting um, in math when I was teaching just general ed for like fifth grade and below. But even now, I equate things with the wind tunnel to racing or to motorcycles because of horsepower. So we talk about like the horsepower with the fans. And what 350 horsepower per fan means to a student is not the same as if I were to say, have you ever seen a motorcycle? And motorcycles typically, as loud as they are, as fast as they are, only put out X amount of horsepower. So, yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of parallels and there are a lot of ways for me to make connections for the kids to understand it a little bit better. That's awesome. Um, Do you ride your bike to work? I did uh, when weather permitting. (laughs) Oh yeah. When I was, so I live in Wisconsin and teach in Illinois. Oh, so my commute is between like 102 and 110 miles. Um, one way. So uphill both way in the the snow. (laughs) I put snow tires on the bikes. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, so I don't get a chance to ride the bikes. And I mean, it's just, there's not such a safe place to keep the bikes. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, I've seen the videos where it takes 10 seconds to steal a motorcycle and I just don't want to take that chance, especially in the Chicago area. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there've just been, and it's not, you know, it's not like a knock to Chicago directly, but there are a lot of pages, especially living here in the Midwest. There are a lot of pages and things like that, that I follow on social media. And you read so often about bikes getting ripped off and people putting out, you know, their own APBs for their bikes and you know, they're gone. Yeah. So that's, I mean, my bike is an extension of me. Both of them are, and there's no way I could ever, ever risk anything happening to either of them. Yeah. Especially when you've sunk at least $50 into it, which I'm sure. <laughs> you know, anything that's... above 20 for me. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> right. So we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here because um, I really want to know how I, I, okay. You, you did an excellent job of chronicling on um, in an email how you got your start. But for people that can't read, which is probably most people that listen to my show, <laughs> um, how did you actually get started in, in riding and, and how did motorcycles get introduced into your life? I grew up around cars primarily, never racing, nothing racing or anything like that. But my dad was always the one to work on the cars in the family. And he had me underneath the car with him when I was four and he'd change oil at the house and stuff. And, um, you know, I was always interested in the mechanics and how things worked. And I had a strawberry shortcake big wheel when I was a kid. (laughs) So my dad was working on the car and he gave me my own little toolbox, but it was a real tools of his. And so I was quote unquote working on my big wheel and I managed to get it all apart. And the unfortunate thing that I learned from that was that sometimes when things come apart, they're not meant to be taken apart. And can't be reassembled. So that following garbage day, my big wheel was at the curb. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> it's yeah. such a sad story. I've never gotten another big wheel since. Uh, I'm sure crushed. <laughs> so I grew up around cars primarily. Um, and then I was introduced to motorcycles. I was always interested in them. And I thought they were really cool. And, you know, people that rode them and everything. But didn't know anybody that rode them as regular as um, my buddy Chris, who I met 13 years ago, Nitrous Chris Singsheim. And he always rode and raced. And I'd go to the track and stop in at the garage every now and again and ask a bunch of questions and was super interested. And it was a fall day in 2009. And Chris and I and a bunch of our buddies are all standing around hanging out. It was a Sunday and they are giving me such a hard time. Chris and I went everywhere together on what's now his drag bike, his super cool drag bike, but it used to be really stock. So I would ride as passenger on that. We'd go everywhere, you know, super chilly weather, bundle up, head out, nice warm days. Um, and I, I remember a time we were out on a country road, not too far from home here. And I had asked him for so long, you know, what is it like? at the track when you launch a bike. What is it like? What does it feel like? So he's like, you know, all right, here's what we're going to do. So he had me hold on tight. And he's like, "Um, I'm going to launch it as hard as I can, knowing that you're on the back and knowing that we're on the street like this. (laughs) So I'm on the back. He launches it. You know, we take off for just a short bit. And I am like, oh, my gosh. This is so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and I was supposed to be forever racing myself. So um, fast forward to that 
fall day, everybody was giving me a hard time. So one of our buddies, um, you know, in his own funny guy way, kind of very bluntly said that I was going to learn how to ride that day. And he got his wife's Suzuki Savage out of the garage, which is, it kind of looks like a sportster. And they set me up in the middle of this rural uh, road, two lane road. And all my instructions were to go straight to the end of the street and stop. And, you know, they said the clutch will save you. Here are the brakes. And I got to the end of the block and put my directional on and I turned the corner and I made it all the way around the block. And I think Chris was the only one that was really concerned. The rest of them were like, she's gone. <laughs> she, so, she's in Illinois right now. Yeah. So he came and met up with me and was like, oh my gosh. And so we practiced road around a golf course nearby the rest of that day. And then we uh, started looking for my bike, <laughs> you know, and I found uh, it not too long after at a dealership. And I started racing a few months after that. And that's been it. And at least you didn't Pee Wee Herman it and like just, you know, take off and then <laughs> cartwheel a couple right? hundred, hundred feet later. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Um, now, aside from motorcycling, I mean, we'll get into motorcycling because I'm sure there's, you know, nothing more you love more than motorcycling based solely on the emails that you sent. So <laughs> other, other than motorcycling, which you seem to kind of like just a little bit, what little. other hobby? Yeah, a little bit. What other hobbies do you have? I spend a lot of my time outside of anything motorcycle related is uh, cooking and baking and just, you know, anything active, like working out, hiking, um, anything outside, especially, but those would be like the two time consumers, like anything physical, anything active, and then cooking and baking. (laughs) Yeah. Have you ever thought of starting your own, um, like food truck to take to the, take to the races? Okay. So here's this brilliant idea that I came up with. So (laughs) there was this giant white, it looked like, uh, giant white ice cream truck with no windows on it sitting at a dealership by my house for the longest time. And I remember Chris and I were eating lunch across the street from there one day. And I said, it would be awesome if we would buy that and we can totally set it up so we can haul the bikes in it, have all the tools. And then I'm going to sell baked goods out of it at the track. So we're going to keep all the racers fed and we can still race. I still think it's a brilliant idea, but I don't think like, you know, the health department would be too cool about cans of gas next to bags of flour or anything like that. <laughs> I don't know. You would probably be surprised what you could get away with, actually. You might you be, uh, <laughs> that might not be such a bad idea. <laughs> no, that, that's what I was thinking too, because here you have this huge like roach coach and I couldn't think of a better toy hauler and then, you know, <laughs> flip up the beds and it's like the stove, you know? Yeah, no, that'd be awesome. Especially with your fabbing skills and stuff. I'm sure you guys could figure it out. I think it would be perfect. I'm yeah. still down to try it. Dude, there's your retirement. Like you could just <laughs> quit now and just go racing and food trucking around the country for the rest of your life. So if there's some way that I could incorporate the two, I mean, really, there's so, you know, there's so much life to live yet. If there was a way that I could make a living combining like cooking and or baking and anything with racing, perfect. That'd be the life. That is, you know what, and being a teacher, like just being like outgoing, you know, personality, it seems like 
you have a cooking show future maybe it, you know now uh-huh. that you're getting now that you're getting like a manager for all your appearances and all that stuff i, I you know <laughs> i could see a 10 year plan for you being on the cooking channel uh, we'll have to call them up <laughs> yeah no no i i actually saw a bunch of stuff um now that i'm like facebook connected where everybody's talking about pies and stuff like that that you're cooking and i thought man like it's not it must not just be Hey, look, my friend cooked a pie. It's it's looked like, hey, my friend that like makes these pies, like made a pie <laughs> or one of our famous pies. And I was thinking, wow, you must be like into cooking. So apparently that is, you know, one of your actual like a hobby, not just something that you do when you have a spare time, right? I have caught wind of the Wisconsin State Fair having a culinary contest. And I didn't know that it was open to anybody, like anybody that enjoys baking and cooking to some extent could enter. And so I researched it a little bit more and found out that there are all these different categories and, you know, rules to follow and all these things, but anybody can enter it. So I entered it and three for three years, I placed with things that I baked. I won a blue ribbon for the state of Wisconsin for my oatmeal raisin cookies. Um, I got fourth place for my chocolate chip cookies, which is like, I guess it's apparently their toughest competition category. So I was pretty proud of that. And then uh, my cupcakes, my cupcakes are like the number one that I usually end up taking to the track with me and um, decorating with some sort of message on top of them that everybody is usually vying for once we get there. (laughs) Rad. Dude, that's awesome. So let's see. I have chef, teacher, <laughs> racer, yes. and now personality, racing personality. Is there anything that you suck at? Nope. I'm really great at everything. <laughs> so, out of all the... Yeah, let's let's not talk more. Let's just talk pies. Let's make this the pie... Ca- creative pieding. <laughs> there we creative. go. Um, getting back into motorcycles. Um, what do you own? What have you owned? Like, what was your first bike? My first bike is a 2005 Suzuki GSXR 600. And I still have that bike. I'll never, ever get rid of it. And it's like, I, okay. I just, it just occurred to me after I finished with this latest, I guess, build part B or C with my blue bike that the movie Christine makes so much more sense to me now than it ever did before. Like, I'm not saying my bikes are evil. However, I totally understand that they take out a personality and it's almost like they're a, they're a person or a living thing. So I'll never, ever get rid of my black bike. And so that's my 600. And then I also own a 2006 Suzuki Hayabusa, and that's my primary race bike. I also ride it on the street a bit, but excuse me, not so much now as I did before. But that too, I really never felt super connected to it. And for a little while, I was thinking of maybe finding something else because I really like Chris's bike. But after really Chris gets my vision and, and gets what I wanted to do with the Busa. And so he 
helped come up with a plan for how to make that happen. And it wasn't until we were almost done with everything and it truly happened once the bike was back down, you know, on all twos and outside (laughs) (laughs) in the sun for me to take some pictures of it that I really got to see it a step back and see how different it was. And I started it up and I took her for a rip down the road. And at that moment I was like, this is a different animal and I'm totally in love. Like I'll never, ever get rid of that bike either. So Chris and I joke that we're going to have this museum of motorcycles. Because we'll never get rid of anything again. So at this point in the interview, I had some questions for Steve slash Michelle. And I was asking her about her Busa. And I had showed her like some shitty image that I found off of Google Images. And here's what she had to say about Busas. So I was going to ask you, like most Busas that you see are either like crazy Florida, look like a transformer, like yes. that one. You know, that, lo- that looked like some crazy OCC choppers got a hold of a busa, but either that or, um, they look, you know, like, I don't know, there's just a certain type of big Husky dude on them. So it's like, it's funny to say that you, you know, you have, you totally don't fit the Hayabusa stereotype stereotypical rider. Do you get that a lot when people are like, Hey, what do you ride? Like a rebel. And you're just like, uh, (laughs) dude, let me tell you what I ride. I'm like, I'm on a two fifty. Yeah. (laughs) No, you Uh, know, 250 per cylinder, right? (laughs) You know, everybody starts somewhere and I don't know that I necessarily would have sought out a Busa um, if the whole situation with this one wasn't as perfect as it it was. Um, I knew that Chris was working on it as a build for somebody else and he had even let me kind of get my hands in the motor when it was up on his bench And the bike came up for sale and I knew that Chris had worked on it and I knew what he had all done to it. And it seemed like a safe bet because so many people think that they're bike builders or mechanics or whatever else and end up screwing up something more than they, you know, are making it better. And then you don't really know what you end up with. And I just didn't want to be in that predicament. So I scooped this one up you know, at the first opportunity and that's how I ended up with it. And there were definitely times when I'm like, holy cow, I'm way in over my head. And, (laughs) but you know, I just, I had to believe in myself and believe in my abilities and know that I was riding that bike. It wasn't going to take me for a ride. So. Yeah. Hell that's tough for me to do sometimes, you know, even on, even on some 250s that I've ridden, they've uh, definitely got away from me. So, I mean, yeah, it's definitely, that's cool that you have like, you not only have like a confidence, but I mean, that you are piloting this thing down a drag strip at who knows, Mach 5000, right? <laughs> so, yeah. I, I think that's, that's awesome. Um, what? Okay. So you've only had these two bikes. Do you have a favorite one? And do, if you do, maybe you don't, if, when, I mean, you alluded to Christine. Maybe you don't want to say it out loud. You know, <laughs> they're not here. Make... They can't hear me. <laughs> okay. Um, I think I'm. I'm a ta- like now that I kind of made. It sounds so funny, and some people might not get it. But now that I've made the connection with my Busa, who I call Blue until she earns a better name, um, I've you know I've gotten that connection 
with the blue bike and they're both so different. Like my black 600 is my first bike. So obviously that holds a different kind of place. Uh, but that's also, I've only been in one wreck and it was on the 600 and just all the time that it took to get it back to good and then truly rebuild it over winter and come back out on it stronger than the next season. It's just something completely different than, you know, having a bike and slowly making it your own. Like I have with the blue bike. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. I mean, you're going to, um, you would make a great mom just because it's kind of like asking what your favorite kid is. You answered adequately. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're both, I love them both in their own different way. Um, you know, the, the crazy thing is, is that you, you like doubled displacement pretty much more, right? Because boosts are thirteen hundreds, right? Thirteen, yeah. So, so I mean, yeah. But I had a I had a nice gateway um, with Chris's bike. So I was I was kind of growing out of the six hundred, and Chris was generous enough to let me use his bike for quite a big chunk of a whole season, and to just kind of get the feel of what it was like to be on something that was a little bit more built and a whole lot faster. And, you know, he had confidence in me and he's a great coach and I knew that I was in good hands and I slowly stepped it up. And then, so that was on his built 1000. And then, so I went from the 600 to the 1000 and then I had ridden a couple Busas, which are 1300s at the track, just other people's, and then I really got into racing mine. So it wasn't just 600 to 1300. There were plenty of times in between there um, to kind of get a feel for something a whole lot bigger and more powerful. What was it like from your perspective to kind of master racing or like even go like, I'm sure your first run, if you can remember that, um, describe that as compared to like when you first knew you were advancing or when you first felt that you were like making gains or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, let's, let's, let's go back into a time machine till your very first run. I'm sure you were like pooping your pants and like butterflies (laughs) in the stomach sort of thing. We joke about the nervous poops, but like, (laughs) that's, that's kind of uh that's to the wayside. And now it's just like mega butterflies and sweaty palms Mm -hmm. about the extent of it. But my first pass ever was in April of 2010 and um what was the day like do you remember it was a cooler day and i remember being in like jeans and nikes with a long sleeve shirt had my leather on and chris and i and a friend of ours um rode three up in his single cab chevy lowered chevy with my bike on a single place open trailer down to the track and for I don't know how long before I was picking his brain and I'm like I can't do this he's like shut up yes you can shut up you're gonna do it (laughs) you're gonna be fine I'll be right there with you and um I was you know I went down the track my very first time in helmet gloves leather jacket jeans and nikes so there you have it Michelle Mankiewicz goes from next to nothing going down the track and almost barely race legal attire to uh, reigning champ, at least last year, and uh, almost the year before, until Guy Bellinger came in and stole it on his turbo ride. Uh, stick around and check out WIR Top 10 Bikes on Facebook. And check them out on the gram. And uh, follow all the fun, cool action that happens over there. 
All right, next up is one of my favorite all-time guests. This is episode, I think, 29, and uh, I'll let the episode introduce itself. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 29 of Creative Writing. How you doing? That's good. Hey, so on this show, there's a couple things I want to talk about. Uh, first and foremost being a ride I went on last weekend. Uh, something I want to mention that's coming up this weekend as well. And cut. All right, great. So first and foremost, I have a guest this episode. And right off the bat, I want to tell you a little bit about this guest. This person and I talked about many things. Uh, first of all is that if you can wrap your head around this, this person lives in the future. Hey, bud. What's going on, man? Just out of bed. Uh, I'm sorry it's so early over there, actually, but... Um, nah, don't be silly. I really am a morning person. So we talked about that to some length on and offline. This person lives in the future through some uh, texting communication. God, I call everything a text. Through some uh, written communication. I asked about you know what it was like in the future. This person told me that kangaroos run everything where he uh, is at. And in the middle of typing, actually, he said, oh, shit, and then some mumble jumble. So I'm assuming one came and got him. And this may have been before or after our interview. I'm not quite sure how time works where this person's from. Um, But another thing we talked about is basically how you have to survive in the future where this person's from. I guess you're either hunting platypus, throwing a boomerang, or playing rugby, right? (laughs) This person happened to be extremely handsome, as is everyone from the future, I guess. I don't know if it's my adult beverage, but you're looking uh, quite handsome this morning. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. (laughs) All right, never mind. Maybe I was just drunk. But also, I think this person might have been the voice of Kit. If you remember the show Knight Rider from the 80s, the Knight Industries 2000, the car was named Kit, Knight Industries 2000. And let's do a little skit here. Kit! Kit! I got knocked out. I, I lost my memory. What's my name again? Michael. And this guy didn't even care that I did the interview naked on my end. I try to be careful about how I move around here and what I jiggle and everything, but sometimes it doesn't always work. So <laughs> Yeah, no worries, mate. <laughs> So, yeah, there you have it. We'll, we'll get to him in a little bit. Um, first thing I want to mention right off the top of the bat, this show. The top of the bat? What could be on top of a bat? Did you do it on two wheels? Because I would definitely vaccinate cattle on two wheels. I'll prove it to you. I think it's time to quit bullshitting and get to our guest. What do you say? Take it away, guest. Good morning. Hello, hello. It's Dan here from Australia. I'm um, 40 plus years old and I've been riding bikes since I was four. I think my dad first gave me my first motorcycle, which was a Peewee 80 when I was four years old. And the first thing I did was loop it in the bushes, showing mum how cool it was. <laughs> um, as I said, I've got uh, a bit of an online presence and I've been riding and writing and drawing motorcycles for God, however many years it is now, but um, yeah, I've got a few different uh, places that I like to hang out online, including my own website, dailybikers.com, and uh, that's where I sort of do a fair bit of my writing, and then I've got a little Etsy shop called Daily Bikers as well, 
And on the Etsy shop, it's all of my um, scribbles and drawings turned into mostly gift cards, but different things for motorcycles and motorcycle-related fan stuff. Um, and then I'm, you know, pretty much everywhere else online you can think of. I've got Facebook, I've got Twitter, Google+, Plus, um, and that's probably, what, probably where I think we met with the creative writing posts was on uh, Google+. Plus. Yeah, Um Actually, you know, obviously you were in, I searched motorbikes and you were the first person that came up and this is months ago when, before I even had a podcast and I was wow. like, what's this Google plus thing ripping off Facebook. Right. So I, I just searched motorcycles, Dan Michaels collection. I didn't really know what collections were and I saw what? yours and I clicked on it. And then the next thing, you know, it's basically the only one I needed to go to, to be honest, you know? Yeah. And, um, Suffice it to say, you're you're a slight motorcycle enthusiast and and somewhat aficionado, and <laughs> the whole reason I actually finally decided to uh, contact you uh, personally to get this interview was because I was a bit of an asshole, <laughs> and I I was trolling one of your uh, the little BMW posts. I was just kidding anyway, but you know, uh, true story. I thought, you know, I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> So, I mean, who is this guy? What the yeah. hell? <laughs> and I think I fired back something pretty cheeky as well, and that was when yeah. I realized I was getting trolled and it was all good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I was just like, oh, geez. Because, you know, every around here, everybody and their mom has a GS, you know what I mean? They're like the, of course, <laughs> worldwide, right? Worldwide. Yeah. Uh, I think yep. I, I saw about... 20 of them on, I went for a ride yesterday and at least 20 of them passed me. No, no, and that's not hyperbole. That's the truth. And, um, I was just up, up in this Bay area, San Francisco area last weekend. Again, uh, I, on the freeways, probably double that, you know, like, uh, yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're the, uh, if we're going to call them, you know, a lot of people copy them. So they're like the premier, you know, do it all touring bike. And I was just like, Oh, not another GS. Oh, he can't really jump it off those stairs or whatever you're looking at. And so, yeah, that was a, it was pretty funny. And I, right away I could tell your sense of humor and I thought, Oh man, me and this guy are going to get along. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. You know, you know I've, I've only had the GS for uh, probably eight months now. So it's still pretty new to me, but I'm trying to break down that stereotypical thought about having one because since the new engine, the, the water-cooled box has come out, I, f- I feel like the whole bike is a different bike. And mm-hmm. I, um, I actually spent some time in the UK touring um, mostly Scotland and a bit of England um, on one of the earlier GSs. It was a 2012, so just before the water-cooled boxer came out. And I thought, what a piece of shit. This bike is junk. <laughs> it's gutless. It's got a horrible throttle, throttle response. And what is this crazy telelever front end? You know, like it's got no no pitch and no dive. And it just really freaked me out. And I thought, no, that's a piece of junk. I'm never riding one of those again. And then um, at the time I had a Multistrada. When I came back home, I was like, yeah, this is the shit, man. This is what I missed, you know. And um, a, another friend of mine helped me change my mind basically and I test rode the uh, the new water cooled GS and I was sold thing is a ripper yeah you know what they are and I write um, motorcycle technical data for a living and when those came out and I was looking at the data for it I was looking at it uh, thinking you know this is I could tell just from front to rear they didn't just plop a new motor in it you know what I mean they they redid yeah, exactly. uh, I thought I was going to be able to look at it and kind of apples to apples compare it to the old one and hands down it was uh redesigned and now that 
you know, the water boxer is basically in, in almost everything. I think the R9T might might be the only one that still has the air and oil cooled uh, yeah, engine. Yeah. I might be wrong that's about right, that, but I'm pretty sure that, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the only one that still uses the, um, I forget the K50 or the K25 motor versus the K52 or whatever the, the water boxer is called. But yeah. yeah. Yep. So also from, no, I haven't like totally internet, you know, stalked your past or anything, but it does look like <laughs> you are a BMW fan. Uh, it looks like you've had a few. Um, I've had two actually. Yeah. The first okay. one. The, the first uh, sojourn into BMW land was their inline four in the S1000 double R. Oh, okay. So wow. single R, I made a mistake, the single R. So the naked version, which was detuned a bit, but still there, you know, 150 horsepower or something. Oh, yeah. Um, Four-stroke, four four-cylinder weapon of madness. And it was right. just, it was a crazy bike and I loved it, but it was actually a little bit small for me because I'm, uh, I'm fairly tall, six foot two. Yeah, and I really felt like I just I could never really get comfortable on that bike. Right. Um, and plus, the power was just ridiculous. I'm, I'm much yeah. more of a twin fan than a than an inline four fan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it comes on. You know, the the bottom end torque is uh, uh, compared to a twin is like you know where they compete basically. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did it feel a bit like riding like a, a push bike or something then compared to like? A, <laughs> Being able to like uh, stretch out on a motorcycle a little bit. <laughs> I, I use the analogy Donkey Kong on a trike. I felt like you know I never I was sitting on top of the bloody thing the whole time. I never really felt like I sat in it, and it was just um, yeah I don't know. It just wasn't just wasn't cool because as we've just discussed, Australia is a pretty you know it's pretty well, we haven't talked about it a lot, but it's a pretty um, pretty. Um, vast country you know there's lots of space in between the major cities um so we do quite a lot of long long haul riding which might be you know like eight hours on the saddle um to get to the next town and that shit just ain't comfortable on an s1000r with no fairing you know just sitting on top of this bike like a praying mantis on a giant scooter <laughs> right <laughs> a praying mantis trying to ride a dung beetle across country um that's it man yeah so uh, how did you get into biking i mean at four um you had a fairly early start well see it's funny over here we don't sort of think of it as that unusual and i think that's because we do have such a vast country most kids you know especially the ones like uh, our family we grew up in the country area so there was lots of scrubs and trials and you know, different um, forests and every, everything. It was all rideable. So most kids would have had a dirt bike as a part of their sort of growing up. And for me, um, my whole family rode. My oldest brothers, got two older brothers who both rode. My sisters could ride. Mum met dad riding a motorcycle. You know, there was all this sort of motorcycle history in our family and it was just really natural. So, yeah, the minute I could actually have one, that was it. I was sold and I've never right. looked back really. I had, I had right. a small sort of gearhead petrol car moment in my twenties, but always came back to motorcycles. Yeah. Um, so from that first time you looped your uh, 50 into the bushes until uh, <laughs> you were sold. <laughs> yeah, that was it. I'm, I'm into this. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. I know. It seems like the, the allure of danger is all it takes for, you know, guys to, to think like, oh, this is this is good. <laughs> it's so true. I was just thinking about that the other day. You know, it, 
I was tipping in really hard on a on a, um, a merge lane going on the freeway. I've got this little loop close to my house that uh, touches two or three different main freeways that connect the west where I live into the city. And um, they have these great merge merge ramps, which are really kind of like nice, long, sweeping corners that are, are speed rated at the national speed rate uh, speed limit, which is 100 k's. So you can basically jump on them, tuck in real hard and just give it all it's got. And I had this kind of weird wee moment on the back of the GS, kind of went a little bit wiggly and I was just kept on powering through it. But I was thinking, you know, that's what it's all about. It's that yeah. little bit of danger that makes you feel alive. And I love it. I'll get into like all the bikes you've owned. Um, if you've been having them since four, I'm sure there's one or two in there. So we'll, I'll, I want to get into that. But how did you uh, get into drawing? Sure, sure. Um, well, I've always kind of played around with drawing. I've again since since I was a young kid, I like I just liked um, the medium of drawing. I liked pencils. I liked textures. I've, I've just always liked that sort of um, arty stuff I guess so I did it pretty much all the way through school and you know everyone's got that same story where you you end up drawing portraits of your family or some crap for your exams and you know never look at it again um and then you know I suppose a big chunk of my life I sort of just put it down and got serious about having a living making a living um and then I've kind of realized I suppose after 15 years in a corporate corporate job that it's really not how I want to live my life, not what I really want to do with my life. And I kind of um, navigated into a situation where I could have some time out from work. So I never, yeah. I never, never really did that um, sabbatical thing where you, you leave high school and go and party for two years or whatever. I kind of went straight through into a corporate role and um, I did a bit, I did a bit of cool stuff, but, I felt like something was missing. So it would be about two or three years ago now. I just went, well, that's it. I'm going to have some time out and I'm going to explore what I, what else I can do to make a living other than, you know, working my ass off for 40 or 60 hours a week for the band kind of thing. Right. And um, my sister's also a bit arty. My, a couple of people, my family are a bit arty, I'd say. And it was actually my sister who said to me, why don't you – why don't you do more motorcycles? You've never really, you know, played around with drawing motorcycles. And as soon as she said it, it was like a light went off in my head. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I want to draw. Cool. <laughs> and um, from there, I just got obsessed and started drawing motorcycles like mad. And, uh, yeah, the, the next thing I knew, I had an Etsy shop and it was all going really well. That's awesome. Is that your primary income? Um, if it would be I would die of starvation because I don't make a lot of money out of it. <laughs> it's more like a little bit of a hobby uh, hobby income and maybe the odd, you know, petrol cap for a BMW or set of um, tire valve caps for something. <laughs> right, right, right. I know. Unfortunately, that's the thing too. If I could sit around and blab about motorcycles with awesome people all the time, I would be a millionaire. But in reality, I'm like, you know, this is this is my last beer, and uh, <laughs> maybe next week I'll be able to afford another one. You know, so <laughs> no, I know how exactly. It goes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So my main source of income is actually freelancing. So. Copywriting is freelancing, and I do that on a um, a little marketplace, a little bit like eBay for freelancers, if you will. And I work for software developers mostly. So 
that's kind of become my main source of income. And then the uh, the Etsy thing with the motorcycles is my hobby and secondary income. And the rest is, uh, yeah, sort of get by somehow, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, that's great. And, you know, they say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But they also don't tell you that you probably will starve to death because even, you know, Mozart uh, <laughs> did what he loved and he, he died penniless. He didn't make a cell <laughs> after he was dead. So. Oh, no, that's be- right, hey didn't become famous until after he was dead. So yeah, keep up whatever you're doing. That's, that's, uh, keeping food on the table. Um, so let's talk hobbies. I want to know what you do when you're not writing. Well, I'm not writing. You'll probably find me, you'll probably find me splitting my time between writing for the blog. So daily bikers takes up a little bit of my time. I'm always trying to write, you know, something that's not just a boring me, blog i'm trying to bring something that's a bit interesting to the table with my writing there and if i'm not doing that i'm probably drawing because believe it or not drawing one of those motorcycles takes a long time the coloring especially is you know it can take days leading to weeks leading to months i'm i'm doing a knucklehead at the moment like a really early 36 knucklehead and it's got so much uh chrome and black and just all the hues of grey through to black through to white and silver, it just takes forever trying to get it right. Right. So um, That's one of the things about a, a drawing is that people don't realize to make something look shiny or reflective, you have to do all that by hand. And, uh, yeah, I could imagine that just coloring in one of those things in to make it look as good as they do takes, you know, the, the illustrating, the lines might be the easiest part, actually. You know, that's, that's pretty incredible. True, true. Yeah, look, it's um, it's been about fifteen months, I think, now since I actually started, and my my style has changed a lot. Like at, at the start, I was using watercolor pencils and watercolor paint, and if you look at my early work, I don't know if you can see it online because um, like I, I can see it and I can notice it straight away. But sometimes when I show other people, they just think it's the same as what I've always been doing. But for me, the really early stuff was very basic and I was just using basic colours. So it probably looked a little bit more, I don't know, avant-garde or something, whereas what I really wanted to do was try to get that kind of hyper-realistic look to them. So I started using, um, well, Posca paint pens is one of the mediums that I really like. But then I found out about Copic markers. And um, Copic markers have this cool colouring system, which is basically colour by numbers. And um, the effects you can get by using all of their greys and silvers and, and different t- hues of black. It's just awesome, you know, and some of the bikes that I'm producing of late, for, to me, look hyper real, you know, they're just almost photography-like. Excuse me. Right, right. That's one thing I, I noticed. I was looking at uh, an old Ducati Cafe racer that you had illustrated, and I was thinking, oh, man, this looks so cool because it here it is, it's a drawing, and, and it just looks so cool and the, it's real vibrant colors. And then I was looking at that fat boy that you did and the thumbnail, yep. I was like, wait, oh, wait, that's a picture. And then I zoomed in. I thought, oh, shit, no, that's he drew that, you know. So uh, yeah, yeah. I could tell. I could tell. But the, the thing is, is I, I like both styles, you know, like both both of them have a, a showcase your skills so well. But at the same time. Yeah, I you know what you're saying about the the styling being different. Like, yeah, one looks like a cool yep. illustration, and one looks like like I said, it looked like a photo from the thumbnail. And I had to, I thought, why? Well, I thought he drew these, you know, not 
took photos and I yeah. zoomed in and holy shit, that's a drawing. So, you know, I hate, I, I hate those assholes. I, you know, I, I go to the motor shows usually for work and stuff. And there's that guy that he's, uh, been big for the last couple of years and he's doing shit with chopsticks and, you know, he's drawing with chopsticks. He's a Japanese guy, I forget his name. Um, but he, you know, you're like, Oh, come on. And then a few hours later, here's this bike that looks pretty damn real. Like, it's not, right? <laughs> so, and then he just like, splashes a little bit sort of like uh jackson pollock on it you know but it still is amazing and you realize you know what i look at your drawings and i think maybe if i sat down for an afternoon i could do this and then five hours into it when you're banging your head on the table because you can't even get like a round realistic looking <laughs> wheel you're going no this this is real skill it's not just you know you make it your your drawings make it look so simple and what you do, what I don't think people get away from it is the actual like intricacy and delicateness of each, uh, you know, basically like the techniques behind getting them to look that good, but still look that simple. And, and you know what I mean? It's just, it's pretty incredible. Well, so thank you very on. much, man. That makes, uh, that makes me feel really good. I'm, I'm really uh, flattered to hear you say that because yeah, for me, those earlier drawings and that Ducati that you mentioned, it's uh, the green and red custom cafe racer, right? I yeah, I, oh yeah, I know the one. The one straight off my head. That one has sold really, really well as birthday cards, and um, even as prints, it's been one of the ones that keeps selling and keeps selling. But from my perspective, I almost didn't load it onto the site for sale because I just thought uh, it looks too. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think it's any good. I don't know if I'm any good. And um, you know, so it was. A, it's a really weird thing for me as the person who made it to hear someone say that. Um, whereas, you know, these days I strive for that kind of fat boy finish on every drawing that I do. And I think I'd find it really hard to go back to that watercolor stage and make stuff look like that again. It's just, yeah, it's just a weird, a weird thing. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Going, going backwards feels counterintuitive, but, uh, Mm, mm. I'm sure sometimes it would be, I don't know if you do it just for fun, just to get it out. Like you feel like you need to draw and you don't, you're not going to be putting the effort toward it, but you just do it. Cause when I was, um, that's why let me, let me counteract my compliments by saying that, um, I hate your guts for being able to do that. What would take me like seven, <laughs> seven years <laughs> to do one stinking illustration. <laughs> I don't do anything as good as any of the people I talk to. That's the great thing about doing this podcast (laughs) because even it is mediocre, but most people don't have time to like go try and do a podcast. Yeah. Credit, credit to you actually committing and doing (laughs) something and, and, and executing it and then having a product that you can actually say, well, there it bloody is. Yeah. Right. Kudos to you as well, man. Right. (laughs) Right. And, um, they are, this podcast is about as mediocre as my drawing. So, um, thank you for the compliment. (laughs) Everyone, everyone seems to like it, but I do the same thing. I was like, should I even put this out? Should I even do one this week? You know? (laughs) So yeah, yeah. We are. We're starting critics. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too, is I'll, I'll draw with my kids and stuff. Like you, like that's what I was wondering about. If you ever just blow one out of the water and it looks like total shit to you, but then someone else would look at it and be like, wow, that's it's cool. That's great. You know, cause I yeah. draw stuff with my kids and they, they treat me like Picasso, you know? And then I look at it and like, Oh, that's just like a little scribble, you know? And, uh, yeah, yeah. unfortunately when I, when I try to do really good stuff, cause I've tried to draw motorbikes, you know, years ago. And I mean, I, you can see, I made it about 30 or 40 minutes. I just, I couldn't sit down and take the time that you do to, to put into those just because I, I need like instant gratification. You know what I mean? And, um, 
yeah, it's just that I is totally just understand. Yeah. I totally understand. And um, I get asked a lot online. You might have even noticed it in some of the Google Plus communities and stuff where we've hung out together. But I get asked a lot to do other people's bikes. And it's mostly chicks. They want to do their husband's bike. They've got a boyfriend and they want to, you know, make the most awesome birthday present. Can you please draw me a bike? And I have to say no because I just I can't charge for that. It would take way too long and I feel like I'd need to charge, I don't know, maybe $1,000 a drawing because it just it takes so much of my time to do one. Yeah. And, this, and the second reason, well, so that first reason is purely financial. I don't mind drawing bikes for people and I, I have done um, a couple of favours for close friends who've had like, you know, a really important birthday for their brother or their dad or something like that where I'm emotionally invested and I don't, I don't mind doing it for nothing for them. But this, the second reason that I don't do custom drawings is the bike has to speak to me. And that might sound so corny, but it's totally true. I can't just pick any bike or be given any photo of a random motorcycle and, and be told draw it because it just doesn't work like that for me. If right. I've got, I have to have some sort of inspiration from the picture that I'm looking at. Does that make any sense or do I sound completely mad? Oh, no, no. Um, I have I have a friend that was a tattoo artist and he wouldn't do any flash off the wall because the same principle. He didn't really believe that he should be brought something and or somebody come in and pick something. That, that, if they were doing that, he felt like it wasn't... Um, it wasn't a personal thing. They were just looking at like a little picture that they're going to regret, regret six months to, you know, two years down the line. And Mm. actually on the podcast, um, I believe on episode 18, uh, there's a local artist here and he, he does the same thing where he, he does tattoos on people, but he doesn't tell you what he's going to do. He asks for personal items from you, some music, you know, sort of the same sort of process where it has to speak to him. He has to, he actually asks for like a, 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 lucky object or something for you to for him to hold on to while he's giving you the tattoo and all this stuff speaks to and then what comes out is the final product and you're not even sure what it's going to be so you better not get it like on your ass or somewhere that you can't see you know what i mean so (laughs) or but it's i I totally understand it's the same i think it's the I, i think that's basically the the mind of an artist and and a lot of times if you're an art that is um like movies or if you work in Hollywood and stuff, a lot of people around here, there's a whole crew that just takes direction because that's what they're good at. And Lord knows that the writers and the directors, when you come in and tell somebody, this is how you're going to do it. And it's like, well, this is my thing. You know, it's hard. Mm. I, I could see, I could see the conflict where you would want to listen. This is my piece of art. I know it's your bike, but I'm doing it, you know? So. You yeah. Know. Yeah. It's, a, it's always a real trip. I mean, I've got a folder that I just collect the images that I like on my desktop and if the bike doesn't speak to me there's just no chance that I'm going to be able to draw it I I really feel like that sounds a bit crazy but it really is how it works because I work from photos um and and it's got the photo's got to be right you know it's got to look good it's got to have I don't know there's so many elements of of the motorcycle and how it talks to me the color that it is you know it's got a lot to do with the color um but yeah I, I just can't do it like mm-hmm. flick my fingers and, and draw any old bike. Right. Um, and, some, and some people don't get that. Some people find that really hard to uh, take as an answer when, when I'm asked to draw something. Going down the chain of, you know, the chain of production too, I wonder if the photographer that took the picture that you're looking at felt the same way. Like, hey, this bike really speaks to me and he got beautiful 
imagery of it because I mean that's mm. like the that's like the hardest part is to be told, hey, we need a photo of this, and then you go in and you love what you do still, you know. So that's interesting, and I don't think you're off your rocker because uh, you know three other artists have confirmed uh, the same sentiments. Um, oh, cool. What would you say? I mean, I don't know how many different bikes you've drawn, but uh, do you have a favorite? Is that, is that like Ooh. asking you to choose, choose your favorite dog or your favorite kid or, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no, actually, that's pretty, that's pretty straight up for me. It was um, a 2015 uh, GSX-R 1000. It's in the uh, MotoGP colors, and it's the same sort of bike that uh, Vinales is riding in this year's GP. So it's that really full-on bright blue with the right, white Suzuki logo splashed across the fairing. Oh, yeah. That was actually one of my very first multimedia pieces that I used um, Copic markers on. And I spent so much time on that bike getting the the depth of it and really trying to make that uh, fairing look like a, um, you know, it had uh, contours and shape and really rounded edges and, and just all the beautiful kind of um, sparkly bits that made it glow. So that, that was – that was a real turning point for me in terms of the the drawings that I make, um, being able to come out with that product and just go, holy shit, man, that looks amazing. And and one of the things that um, people don't realise is that I draw them really quite large. I draw them in A3 or A2 size, so it's, you know, literally quite a big drawing. So what happens when I condense that drawing? So every, every time I finish um, a full rendering of a, of a bike and take it over to my local office works which is just a, a stationary shop here in australia and they've got really large scanners like flatbed scanners that have um high resolution dpi and high, they, they just capture color really really well i get them to scan the original drawing so i've got that as a, a, a raw file to work with when i make my other products like whether it's going to be in a, you know a stash tin or a birthday card or some gift wrap I have to get that original file back first. And the weird, the weird thing that happens is um, when you shrink it, it just gets 120 million times more more detailed and the colour is so much more vibrant. that I think that's where this hyper-realistic thing came from. Where, you know, the word that I use to describe the drawings that, that are like that is hyper-realistic. I'm not sure if that's even a good choice of words. but uh, It is the, now. Yeah, it is Yeah, now. yeah, there you go pen that one down to Dan Michael. <laughs> when they when they get that small man, they just look even more intense. It's crazy. And that, that yeah. so that's for me that's my favorite drawing so far. I wasn't sure if you're gonna say they they lose detail, but they they increase. They get do they get more vibrant too, like the coloring and all yeah. that stuff? That's yep. incredible. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, a lot of times it's funny that that's your favorite one. Suzuki gets criticism all the time for just being bold new graphics you know what i mean it is a beautiful color palette though i have to agree so that's awesome um thanks man um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I really like the, the starkness of the uh it's kind of white and then a um, pastel green and then that bright blue and together it's uh it's such a cool color combo Right. Yeah. You don't see that many times on a lot of times bikes nowadays are, they're trying to reduce the signage and the nameplates and emblems and, you know, get everything yeah. smaller, I guess, so that it looks like yeah. more of just a color palette. Um, that's one thing about the Harleys you might enjoy is especially the CVO bikes is that they have 
Yeah, yeah. Just a crazy assortment of, you know, and the colors have really crazy names. They haven't had it for a couple of years, but they had, you know, tequila sunrise and spiced rum, you know, like mm. to- totally Harley stereotype, you know, fat guy out drinking his, drinking his um, brew or whatever, <laughs> but yeah, pretty, pretty funny. But the colors they have are, are pretty awesome. Even though I'm not a big Harley guy, I have to, I have to admit they have the most vibrant uh, OEM colors, you know. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's funny you say that, actually. I'm currently working on an XR1200. Oh, man. Here we go. So this is a oh. an XR1200. I've done the line drawing, and I've gone back over it a couple of times with the markers, but I'm trying to get the orange, right? Because if you think XR1200, you know that's an orange bike, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. You just you know, immediately, it, it sings KTM orange in my head. But doing the color study on that bike, there's actually very little orange in it. It's actually kind of red. So right, it's it's a really strange process that I go through when I when I go through trying to get the colors right for the bike. Um, and I, I use like you know swabs to try and find the right color. That bike, I was thinking, oh yeah, it's going to be this, 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 and this, and it just turned out to be red. So that's going to be a really interesting bike to see how it comes out. Yeah. Whenever, whenever my kids are drawing and they'll look at the crayons and the red orange is right next to the red. And sometimes they'll pick up the red orange erroneously. That's what I feel like is that bike tricks you. It's not orange at all. It's like you, you picked up the wrong crayon because this is a red orange bike, you know? So yeah, yeah. that's, that's pretty funny. Th- uh, those are probably also my favorite Harley Davidson's. Um, you know, they don't, unfortunately they don't make any, I, I see him once in a while at racetracks, you know, where people have taken them off the street and, and are, are racing them. But you just, I haven't seen one in the wild on the street in, I don't know how many years it's been probably at least 2013 is probably the last time I saw one on the street. Um, yeah, right. so yeah, those, those are beautiful bikes. So when you're not drawing and you're not riding, um, you're obviously doing one of two things or three things, actually. I guess you're either hunting platypus, throwing a boomerang or playing rugby, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it, man. Spot on. Yes. <laughs> Kangaroos are just leaping down the street every day. <laughs> so really, really, do you, is that, do you have like any, uh, is there anything around <laughs> Melbourne that you love? Is there like a big music scene or anything there or a big? Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Like, there's an absolutely happening music scene. I'm just getting a little bit too old in the tooth myself to be a part of it anymore. But for sure, I used to love, love I played in bands for quite a few years when I was younger. Um, and I, I really do like live music. Um, I listen to a lot of music at home, whether I'm in the car or in the office or out on the bike. I've always got some sort of music going. Um, awesome. I really like really like film as well. So I always try to treat myself to a, a movie session once a week or once a fortnight, go and see something on the big screen because <clears throat> I, I love that whole experience from um, being in a cinema. Actually, that was reminding me too. I wanted to say something, which is another weird kook about my drawing uh, habit, is that um, after studying colours for, like I say, a full day and really intensely being in the flow, doing one of these bikes, when I go outside, it's like I've never seen colour before in my life it's a really strange phenomenon that happens it's like uh i've been born for the first time and i've never seen color before you know and i think it's because i look at the the hues of 
black for eight hours and you come outside and it's like, whoa, everything's so bright. Look at that tree, man. It's got three colours of orange and six yellows in it. It's a really strange thing that happens to my eyes and it might just be some sort of crazy psychosomatic trip, but it, it's true. It's really, um, really opens your eyes up. Right. You're, you're, um, I forget if it's your rods or your cones. I think it's your cones that do color. They probably shut off after just looking at black and white for a while. And then, yeah, you just, you're exposing them, you know, turning them back on for the first time. They're doing a cold boot going, what the hell is that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Everything just looks so vibrant, you know, like even the grass standing there holding my dogs and looking at the grass for 20 minutes going, wow, man, there's yellow in that grass. (laughs) Yeah, people are like, I wonder how much acid that guy took this morning. He's been sitting there for 20 minutes staring at the grass. <laughs> I don't care what they think. <laughs> yeah, fuck, fuck those guys. Um, fuck those guys. So jumping back into motorcycles, now that we know your favorite uh, illustration, um, do, yeah. you ha- do you have a favorite bike that you have owned in the past? Um, yeah, yeah, let's do, talk actually. A couple. Of all the of all the bikes you've owned, yeah, which ones were your favorite and why? I'd, I'd probably go right back to my earlier years when I was in my 20s. And um, I, because in Australia, you are allowed to get your driver's license when you're 16 in South Australia and when you're 18 in Victoria. This is when I was growing, growing up 20 years ago. It might have changed now. I think it's I think it's 18 universally across all the states now. But um, so here's me riding motorbikes, you know, since I was four, dirt bikes. I never had a street bike, though. It was all sort of like, you know, um, we call them ag bikes, which is short for agricultural bikes, just bikes that live on the farm, you know, like an MX100 or something like that, an old Yamaha or DT500 or, you know, a a YZ80 or whatever. And then it sort of comes around to, you know, um, the the ability to actually get a road license and ride on the road. And so I'm like, yeah, totally, I'm doing that. I am so doing that. What bike am I going to get? Right, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get that. Found out, it turned out you can only ride a 250cc for the first year before they give you your P plates and then you've got to get your full license. So you've got to ride a 250cc motorcycle. And I'm thinking, they suck, man. What am I going to get? That's kind of, this is going to be shit. And sure enough, it really was. I bought a Kawasaki ZZR250 and it was shit. Four cylinder, two uh, four stroke piece of crap. You just just revved and revved and revved and never really went anywhere. Yeah. That, so that lasted about I don't know six months maybe of utter frustration before I realised that I could get an RTV. So <laughs> yeah, going from, oh, yeah. A, going from a, a four stroke bike to a two stroke bike and on the road, I was in heaven. And that was like probably one of my all time favourite motorcycles, the RGV two fifty. Yeah, man, talk about it. Those things, even a two-stroke 125, the first bike I ever looped was a two-stroke because I didn't <laughs> I, I didn't realize that it was basically like an on-off button, right? I mean, that... Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Were you also like six foot five at that point in your life or six two? I mean, were, you, were you tall then as well? So it was just like riding. Was it like riding until you found the uh, RGV where you just, you felt like you're just on a, um, I don't know, like an electric moped or something, <laughs> just cramped up and... <laughs> Yeah, those, those are great. I, I think, you know, with the exuberance of youth, I didn't notice it as much. But, I, yeah, I, I shut up in high school, so I, I still was 6'2", and I was, you know, crammed over this tiny little bike. But being fitter and, and lighter, like I never – I was really quite a skinny, scrawny kid, so didn't weigh much. 
jump on this RGV, hulked over the tank, you know, in the full races crouch, just pinning it. <laughs> when we're hitting that two-stroke power band as often as I could. Right. It was mental fun. Absolutely mental fun. Loved it. Like, I have had quite a few bikes, but I'd probably pick out um, the Buell as one of my favourite bikes as an adult. So I had this inter- intermittent stage when I was about, I don't know, 25 to maybe 30, where I didn't really road, ride road bikes any mu- anymore because I moved from South Australia to Victoria, which is kind of like changing countries in Australia. Right. You know, it's it's an eight-hour ride or, or a two-hour flight in a plane to get back home sort of thing. So I sold everything I had to get over here, to be here, and then I just relied on public transport for a while before I finally got back into riding again. And it was a few years later down the track, but I, I got a um, I got the bug really badly for the Buell. Really liked the um, what Eric Buell was doing with his bikes, and I really liked the uh, Ulysses, which was an XB twelve X, big upright wide bars, twelve hundred cc sports motor, and it just went like the clappers. It was awesome. I too looked at those mm. and went, man, just the double headlights, everything about the Buells I thought was so cool looking, you know what I mean? Yeah, same, same, yeah. yeah. And I kept yeah. that bike for four years, whereas normally my bikes get changed over pretty quick. So to me, that says that it was a good bike because, you know, I hung, hung onto it for a long time. Yeah, how often do you go through bikes? Like uh, people go through chewing gum or? <laughs> well, I'm trying to settle down a bit now because I'm doing the freelance thing. I haven't got as much money um, for, at hand as, as I used to when I had a full-time job. But um, the last sort of five or six years, it's been a new bike every year, just about. <laughs> it's oh. crazy. Yeah, so, you're, really, gonna, you're really settling down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Total, totally pulling a pin on all that stuff. But now I'm, I'm actually going to – I've set a goal, and the, the GS has to be a four-year bike. That's what I've told myself. has to be up there with the Buell. And has to last four years. And I think it will because it's a pretty damn good bike. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think you can – sounds like you like it enough to be able to stick with that. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, I went and had a look at the new Multistrada Enduro the other day because it just landed here in Australia. And of all the sort of options that would be out there, I mean, I think the, the GS is the most flexible, um, comfortable – it's you know I reckon it looks great. A lot of people think it's ugly, but I've got the triple black, which is just you know murdered out pretty much black everywhere, um, and it can do you know it can do the twisties in the mountains just as well as just about any other bike that I've come across, and yet it can go off road and do serious off road riding as well. So in terms of you know if I actually had a dream bike to change to, it'd be pretty hard at the moment to to choose something outside of the GS. I um. I rode the S1000XR and I didn't like it because the power delivery of the inline four was just a bit too nuts. You know, it just felt a bit crazy and it had that weird vibration in the bars. And it just put me off. I thought, no, nah, I'm like, not going here. I, I like my big twins. So if there was a, a, a sort of dream bike in the future, I suppose it might be the Multistrada Enduro, but I'd probably want to wait for the next two or three iterations so they really nail it and, and see where it goes from there because, you know, it's a bit – it's a bit too raw at the moment. I'm, I don't want to be a, an early adopter on the first edition of another motorcycle, which I've done yeah. in the past. <laughs> yeah, that's the, live and learn, right? Because that's the thing. A lot of people will do that with the first generation of anything. It's like, ah, uh, you know, there's a few things that you can iron out on here. So yeah, usually the second and third gen is when things start to become super, super, super good. Um, that's right. You know, I noticed... 
the Ducati also, to me, looked a little bit like a, a GS copycat, just a tad. You know what I mean? Everybody. I mean, you know, if you're totally. a, if you're going for a, a ADV category, you know, any adventure touring, you're going to copy the GS just because it is, like we said earlier, the most pervasive bike, you know, in that category. Exactly. I couldn't help but notice the difference. Sorry, notice the similarities when I was taking a few pictures. Even uh, even right down to the um, the wheels. It looks like they've got GS wheels on the thing. Mm, like tubeless. With, with the, um, yeah, tubeless and spoked. So, you know, it looks really similar to the GS. 30 litre tank, you know, all, all of that sort of stuff. It's kind of pretty obvious that they're going straight for a GS copy. Yeah. I also love when people say that this bike is obviously going for the GS, trying to knock the GS off its throne, and yet everybody's copying, you know, the GS. The only thing I can see hitting somebody is on some price point. Oh man! Yeah, I looked up GS prices, and I the GSA was uh, the advent, the, you know, the adventure package yep. was eight. 18.7 American. And I was like, dude, you could buy a Honda NC uh, 700X for like road touring, an XT250 just for like blowing through the trails. And that's only, you know, 12,000 bucks right there. So you still, and then you could buy two Ninja 300s. So I was just thinking like you could have four bikes for the price of that, you know. But granted, yep. I mean, people live, like I said earlier, there, I'd seen a billion of them on the road. So people live and die by that, you know, and they don't, they're willing to pay for that. Obviously, there's something, something to it. Well, you know what, man? It's an interesting point because I, I, I do have um, a $32,000 bike sitting in my shed, you know, and in Australian money. My GS was top of the line with all of the tricks, heated grips, cruise control. Uh, the what they call quick shift assist, which is a quick shifter that shifts up and down without the clutch, um, luggage, the full works, right? And it was at least 32. I think it was closer to 33. That's a shitload of money to have in one bike. And I was, it was pretty, it was a pretty serious consideration point thinking about, you know, am I really going to buy a $30,000 fucking motorcycle? You know, it's nuts. It's a nuts amount of money to have in one bike. But, um, a few years ago, I went through a fairly, you know, fairly dramatic sort of thing in my life where I lost both my parents in the same time. Uh, in the within two weeks of one another, both of them passed away, and it was such a traumatic experience. But something in my head just switched, and it was like, you only you only get one shot at this. You're only here on the planet for this short life, and you've got to take full advantage of every single minute of it. So live it like you've never lived before and i think about three months later i bought a brand new ducati hypermotard evo 1100 sp so everybody what do you think of dan so far he's obviously a bike nut i loved talking to him and i want to find out what he's owned so let's ask him right off the top of your head do you know what you've owned uh could you name every single bike you've owned since four um uh, I'd probably miss a few, but I can get in there. I reckon I could get pretty close. Want to give it a crack? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay, I mean, you well, can I tell definitely... me all the, all, all, all the cats that have been your pets or, you know, you can try another list and we'll see how good you do. <laughs> we'll compare them. Well, you know, back then I probably didn't change them as much either because I was relying on mum and dad to buy, buy them for me. So, um, <laughs> bike one was definitely the Wee 80. 
I think I'm pretty sure it was 80, but it could have been a 50. It was um, no clutch and just, you know, just automatically changed through the gears and he had three gears. I think it was a 50. I can't remember. Yeah, that's um, for me, Yamaha, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. And then from there, I had a, another Yamaha, an MX80. And that was just a, a bit of a progression to go from a clutchless bike to being able to change gears. So that was a proper proper little four-stroke ADCC motorbike. Um, from there, it gets a bit fuzzy. There's this kind of patch in my life where I can't actually remember what bikes we were riding and what my brothers had. But I know there was a DT500 in our life at some point and a YZ, uh, I think it was a YZ250 somewhere in there. Um, and then we probably moved up into the road going stages of my life. I oh, know I had a Suzuki ER185. That's right. That was my, um, that was my teenage years bike. So I was just going through maybe the last couple of years of high school and I had a, this Suzuki ER185 and it's really weird. I, when I think of that bike, I remember it really fondly because I wasn't six foot two back then at that stage. I was still quite a, you know, a little shorter, a little skinnier and a little runtier. And I, I used to think this bike was the biggest, badass motherfucking bike I'd ever seen, you know. And now if I go back to a, a, to look at a, a Suzuki ER185, I can look at it and just go, oh, my God, that was just a piece of shit. <laughs> it was a really crappy bike. But um, I loved it at the time. It was awesome. Yeah, that was your first non-Yamaha then, huh? Was that one? Yeah. I don't know. I think it was we were close to a Yamaha dealer, maybe. Um, from there, as mentioned, I, I moved into the road bikes. I was, I was on the ZZR250 for a short time. And then I moved up to a Suzuki RGV250 um, for quite a few years while I got my full license. And then once I got my full license, it was like time to get mad. And I really, really loved the GSXR. So I think it was maybe a K or... J, I think it was a J model, GSXR 750, and um, you know, pretty naive. Didn't really know a lot about bikes. I didn't really, wasn't really into this, you know, the scene part of being a motorcycle biker or any of that kind of crap. I just really liked riding, so I knew that I wanted the GSXR, but I didn't know a whole lot about them, and I didn't have a whole lot of money. And I found this um, secondhand one that had just been painted British Racing Green, and. It looked awesome. It was like everything I wanted, the twin headlights, the cool fairing, you know, amazing looking bike. And I bought it, you know, from what I know now, it was probably an X-Track bike that had, you know, had the engine worked on and probably been, you know, thrown down the road a hundred times. That's why I had a British racing game fairing. Um, but it didn't matter, didn't matter to me because I just rode it like a lunatic anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so it went like a cut cat. And I think it was probably an X-Race bike, but I, I just didn't know that at the time, you know. But now when I think about it, why else would it have had no deck vehicles and why else would it have had a completely green fairing? Um, you know, I reckon someone had been you know, taking that bike to the track and uh, were probably thinking it's just going to blow up when they sell it. But, you know, fortunately for me, it turned out all pretty good. Yeah. I liked it. There was a brief period of time where I had a friend's bike, a GPZ 950, one of the classic old GPZs, Kawasaki. Um but from there, it was the, the, a period of time where I moved from South Australia to Victoria, so I didn't have a motorcycle or a car for a while. And then once I got 
comfortable with sort of the fact that I'd moved to Victoria, which is it's really like moving to a different different country over here. Um, I thought, right, I've really get I've got to get back on two wheels. I need a bike. I can't do this tram train bullshit. This is doing my head in. I need to get back on a bike. And uh, I'd made a friend through the company that I worked at, who was another motorcycle nutter. And he knew a friend who knew a friend who had this GSX 400, and it was going for like 700 bucks. And maybe you should get that, and that, and you know, just be able to ride to work and stuff, and and see if you want to get back into motorcycles. I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Let's go and check it out. And it was a grey import. It was a GSX F. W 400. Not many of them over here. Yeah, I, no, I think I'd ever. Yeah, you can Google it and you'll find it. Um, pretty much just a little, just a little cruiser. No, it's not a cruiser. It was a sports bike, but it had this peculiar habit of um, the top of the slide falling off the carby every time you leant over past a certain degree. <laughs> so I became an expert of pulling the tank off, <laughs> taking the, the carby caps off and putting the slides back on while I'm riding to work and again to work smelling like petrol. So right. that was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I but guess it, that was their, yeah, that was their early um, lean angle sensor was that we're going to, you know, stall the motor here. <laughs> exactly right. Over 80 degree lean angle, and the carby slides are going to fall off. So just, you know, don't go too hard, fellas. Um, that slowly drove me completely insane, and I, I knew that I was definitely going to get back into motorcycles for sure. So I had about five grand saved up, I reckon. And, you know, in, in Australia, that's not a whole lot of money to put into a motorcycle, but I found this perfectly perfect mint condition. TRX 850 by Yamaha, which is their their um, cheap Ducati Cafe Racer copy. It's kind of you know, it's an 800 cc twin. Um, I think it was a V twin. Yeah, I think I think that's a V twin. It had that typical Ducati sound, and it was an awesome bike, and I loved that bike. Uh, rode that for a while before I went and bought the Buell. So that was kind of brings you right up to, um, oh man, maybe ten years ago. Yeah. And then it started. Then I started getting a bit nuts and changing bikes quite often. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, went from went from the Buell to the Ducati Hypermotard, from the Hypermotard to the Multistrada, Multistrada to uh, a Yamaha F1ZS for about three months before I lost my license for. Um, a month. Thank you, Yamaha. <laughs> All the bikes yeah. fold, of course. Right. And sold that as quick as I could and got the Multistrada. Um, yeah, loved the Multistrada for a fair bit and then traded that on the BMW S1000R and then traded that up just last year to the to the GS. I think that's yeah. pretty much my, my motorcycle history. Good grief. <laughs> More than... More than people double your age have owned, probably. <laughs> you just started going. You started going through them so fast. There, I mean, you had to listen, re-listen to it in editing. But yeah, that's an amazing, <laughs> an amazing love affair with motorcycles. I looked. Yeah, I just looked up the TRX um, 850. It was a parallel twin, and that thing. Parallel looked, twin, yeah. Oh my god, that thing looks beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful bike, but again, just a little bit too small for me. Um, yeah. You know, you're really, and it's got that kind of racist crouch position to it. I'm not into it anymore. It's too hard on my back. <laughs> All 
right, everybody, that rounds out our best of uh, episode. I hope you enjoyed all of them. Uh, if you want to check out more, go back. You know, we've got everything. Uh, should be up in iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud and all the great things. Pocket Cast, Overcast, Dogcast. Uh, uh, what's it called? Like a... Uh, when you break your arm cast, I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, we got them all loaded up there, ready ready to go, uh, all the way back to episode three, two, and one, Mysteriously Disappeared. Uh, if you would like to become a patron, maybe we'll give you access to those. Maybe we won't. Who knows? But uh, go over to patreon.com forward slash creative writing. Check that out. If you wouldn't mind, leave a review in iTunes and uh, or SoundCloud or wherever I just mentioned and uh, tell your friends about us. Tell your grandma about us. Um, and maybe I left a sticker on your bike if you were up in the uh, Beach area and you drive in a Honda F3. Hmm? Maybe I did. Uh, anyway, uh, that's our show for this week. I don't even know what's going on because I'm out of town. I'm in Pismo Beach, and Wiggins is in Minneapolis right now. Check him out on the X Games. Check me out. I'll be riding around all crazy um, around SoCal and throwing stickers on random bikes. All right, everybody, have a safe and happy weekend. And by safe, I mean safe. And by weekend, I really mean weekend. A peace and a grease. And if you want to watch any of the movies I talk about in the very beginning of the episodes, go to YouTube.